Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org. There you can read all about our journey through the year of the Bible. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to join us. If we can help you in any way, you can reach us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. With that, let's hop into today's teaching. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, starting at 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelis saw, Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will, the, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else. He brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and said, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. 
David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I'm going to cut off the head of that uncircumcised Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I'm generally a person who takes myself a bit too seriously, and so one of the spiritual practices that I have been doing of late has been listening to stand-up comedians while I'm driving around to just chill out a little bit and take things down a notch. And uh, I like listening to John Mulaney. John Mulaney is really funny. I cannot formally recommend him as your pastor. So content advised. He's got this bit called the Salt and Pepper Diner, which I laughed harder at that than I think it probably anything in my entire life. The Salt and Pepper Diner is hilarious. But uh, John, and I think I'd, like if I were a comedian, I think I'd be John Mulaney because he's, he's, he's tall and he's lanky and kind of awkward. I think, hey, that's my kind of guy. So John Mulaney has this awesome bit uh, at the beginning of one of his stand-up specials where he says, the, the, the bit is about doing things, doing things. And he's just amazed that any of us would do anything at all. Because percentage-wise, it's 100% easier not to do a thing than to do a thing. Especially if you're supposed to do the thing, it's all the more fun to cancel that thing. Kids, on the, kids are not like this. I love canceling things. Kids love doing things. If kids are complaining, it's, we didn't do anything fun all day long. But if you ask an adult about what did you do last weekend and they didn't do anything, their face lights up. It's like, hey, what did you do this weekend? I did nothing. It was wonderful. I did nothing. And I am, I am among those kinds of people in the world who enjoys doing nothing. I love canceling plans, uh, but I know... There, I nearly canceled this morning just because I wanted to. But, but, you know, others in the room are inclined differently. People who are doers, you have to be doing, have to be moving, and maybe that's you. And uh, this morning, you know, no matter where you are on that spectrum, we're going to have a conversation on the theme of doing things, which may sound vaguely inconsequential. Uh, but I think it, it turns out to be a pretty cool uh, opportunity for a conversation uh, with this screwball kind of perspective on the story that you've probably heard before uh, with, with David and Goliath. And whether you've read the Bible or not, David and Goliath is probably a story that you've heard before. Uh, David and Goliath is used as a metaphor in March and in April with the NCAA tournament when an underdog goes up against the powerhouse, talk about a David and Goliath kind of matchup. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book based on the story of David and Goliath uh, that, that sold a bunch of copies, talking about how uh, what's perceived as a weakness or a disadvantage can actually be in the marketplace or in your life, something that is, gives you a unique angle and, and, and provides a strength for you because of your unique uh, wiring and opportunities. Um, growing up for me in Sunday school, David and Goliath was the ultimate felt board story, you know, the little felt characters that get moved around. I remember hearing the story as a child. I had to have been five years or, or younger because we were living at our old house in Jinx on G Street, and uh, I remember having a distinct nightmare 
about Goliath coming to see me. He was like 900 foot tall, Goliath. And uh, I remember in my, in my nightmare, he ripped the roof off of our house and I ran across the street to my friend Michael Belmore's and I got in his toy chest and I hid from Goliath. Goliath made a, a distinct impression on me as a kid. But today, we're not going to talk about David and Goliath really giving any attention meaningfully to Goliath, and we're not really going to even talk about the consequences of that encounter. We're going to talk about David and Goliath through the lens of David being a guy who did a thing. David as an actor, David as an instigator, David as a doer of things, of stuff. And, and for us, as, as people who are following Jesus, David serves as this a prototype, this example that we're to follow as a person who takes action. So if you recall last week, and, or maybe you've missed, maybe you're reading the Bible uh, with us or, or not, last week we talked about how God was setting up these formal offices of leadership within the company of Israel to address some of Israel's core issues of idolatry and chronic rebellion. And how God set in motion these plans long before David came on the scene to raise up a king and to raise up the role of a prophet. And so Samuel comes on the scene as the last of the judges, and he comes on as the first in this new order of prophets. Uh, God raises up, gives, gives Israel their wish by raising up a king, Saul, who's a good-looking dude. He's tall. He looks like a king, but he seems, he turns out, to be pretty empty on the inside, not all that useful of a leader. And while Saul is still king, and even before then, God was setting in motions plans to raise up a king who would have a heart after God, David. And so David is born to his father, Jesse, in the line of Judah. If you were here last year in, in December, we talked about all the women in the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, David uh, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, who we read about in, in the book of Ruth. And, uh, you know, the, the prophet Samuel is sent by God to go to Jesse's family in Judah, and there God's going to tell him who the new king is. And so Jesse brings out his, his first seven sons, all of whom are tall and good-looking and strapping, and Samuel's looking at them one at a time and says, nope, none, these, none of these are the ones that God is elevating. And God says, holler for the runt. They say, do you have anybody else? And, well, we've got David out with the sheep, but you don't want to see him. Call for him. David, the runt, comes before Samuel, and there Samuel pours a horn of oil on his head and anoints him, says, someday you are going to be king, the successor to Saul. And there's a lengthy gap between his anointing and, between, uh, and when he finally comes as king and unites all of the tribes of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, just before the David and Goliath story, this anointing happens. David is, is called, he's set apart. And then we turn to 1 Samuel 17 where the stalled leadership of Saul is on full display, where we learn that for 40 days, uh, the, the armies of the Philistines, these perennial enemies of the people of Israel, have drawn battle lines, and they've sent out their champion, Goliath from Gath, this gigantic guy, and he's, he's calling for this winner-take-all duel. And uh, look, if you guys win, we'll serve you, but if we win, we get to take all your stuff and you serve us. And for 40 days... Nobody answers Goliath's challenge. And Saul in this story says not a word until David comes in on the scene and starts a conversation. Saul is this uh, like empty suit, lump on a log kind of king of Israel. 
The presenting problem for the people of Israel was this giant from, from Gath named Goliath, but it proved over time that there was a, a more pressing problem, and that was that we've got a king who's an empty suit, who's not uh, taking responsibility for the leadership of the nation. Saul is the king who did nothing, the non-doer, the non-actor. You've got Saul, the non-actor, and then you've got the masses, the armies, who are just waiting to see what somebody's going to do. Every, they're all reactors. And then David strolls on to the scene. The cost of inaction over time for Saul and the, the failure of the people to raise up a champion was that God's name was being dishonored. And this was the thing that when David finally, finally arrived, really hacked him off. This is 1 Samuel 17, 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David may be the runt of his family, but he's got a clear perspective, a clear set of values, the way he's seeing the world. It's like what this giant is doing is not right, and I'm going to do something about it. Now, David gets a response. We saw a handful of characters responding to David as he begins inquiring about the possibility of taking on the giant. And the responses that David gets are similar to the responses that you and I get anytime we choose to take a meaningful course of action, anytime we choose to take a risk that's in alignment with our values. Um, uh, the first response that David got, and that you may be familiar with as well, is ridicule from his brothers. My brother Jacob Odom has been ridiculing me my entire life, but I've learned to cope with it. You know how? Because I've learned that he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's my older brother, my oldest brother, Jacob. He's not an idiot, and I love him dearly. Oh, that felt so good. Uh, it's his love language, too. This is what David's brothers said. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger and asked him, Why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Uh, it's these personal attacks that may be born from insecurity. Uh, last week I referenced a book that I love called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. And Friedman says that when you have a chronically anxious family system uh, and one person says, I'm going to be healthy, everyone else in that family system is likely to sabotage them. So if you're in a toxic situation or you've been in a group of people that are in an unhealthy pattern and you say, I'm going to break from the mold, they're like, what do you think? You're better than us? Like, where do you get on this? Get off your high horse. People want conformity. They want the status quo. When David starts to move toward uh, bold action in alignment with his values, he gets ridicule. The second form of, of response that David gets is from Saul, the king, who's just in disbelief. This is what it says, verse 33. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul, who has never risked anything in his life, only sees worst-case scenarios. He only sees the cost. And people who are perpetually avoid risk and avoid cost only see what could go wrong, not what could go right and where there's possibility and opportunity in the middle of this. The third response was one that we have already known, which was from Goliath, which was just bold, outright opposition and, and taunting him, mocking him. 
The fourth one we can kind of intuit, and that came from this crowd, the masses of reactors, who, you know, on the one hand, they could have been feeling fearful as David raised his hand and began to respond to the Philistine. Like, look, like, like I appreciate your intentions, but if you fail, we're all slaves. You know, that could, that's pretty bad for us. Now, another one could just be like they're perplexed or, or they're, they're ambivalent. Like, all right, whatever, let the kid do his thing. We're probably going to die anyway. We have these four reactions from the crowd, ridicule, disbelief, opposition, ambivalence. Do any of these things dissuade David from the course of action that he's already decided to take? No. That's what it says. David said to Saul, let no one lose a heart on account of this Philistine. I'm going to do it. Your servant will go and fight him. It seems to me to be the case that any time you determine, you resolve within yourself to take a course of action aligned with your values, especially a public action, you can count on these kind of responses. In fact, you should emotionally, spiritually budget for it, even from people who are really close to you. When you determine to be well, when you determine to be bold, anticipate opposition and and resistance. And a lot of times the resistance doesn't need to come from other people because you have it within yourself. There's a sense of, what am I even doing? Who do I think I am? Do I have it in me? What if I bomb in front of everybody? It's going to cost everybody their freedom in in David's case. Not to mention, as you begin taking steps to live out what's in you, the ridicule and the opposition, or most painful of all a lot of times is just the ambivalence of the crowds. Uh, Resistance and opposition is a reality any time we determine to take meaningful action in alignment with our values. So, How did David overcome both the internal and the external resistance? I think that there were five things that David did that enabled him to take action and to persevere once he got his foot out the door. Five things that set David up for success, all of these from the text. The first thing that prepared David to take action and to persevere was that David had grown in competence through past action, not incompetence like he's a dummy, incompetence through past action. This is what he said in verses 34 through 36. David said to Saul, your servant, referring to himself, has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I grabbed it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. I've killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Uh, David is calling back to his past action where he's grown, he's learned, he's had some experience. And based on those experiences, he's gained a sense of competence. He knows what he can do. Uh, The second thing that prepared David to take action and to persevere was that he had developed confidence because of God's past faithfulness. He had confidence in God. Reflecting on the same experience, he said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, he's just told the story of what he did to kill the bear and the lion, but now in this verse he's saying, no, God did it. And David has this imagination about the relationship between his action and divine action, that God was the one giving him the strength, the insight, even as he cooperated and and played his part as well. He developed confidence in the Lord and a sense of competence in himself, what he could do. The third thing that prepared David to take action and persevere was that David was comfortable being himself. This is the next text I'm going to look at. 
So Saul dressed David in his own tunic, put a coat of armor on him, a helmet on his head, fastened on a sword over the tunic, and he tried walking around. But because he wasn't used to them, he said, I can't go in these. He said to Saul, I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he put on all the stuff that he'd been wearing before, the stuff that he was used to wearing when he's out in the fields taking care of the sheep and fending off the, the, the lion and the bear. He's got his shepherd's crook. He's got the pouch on his side in which he put the stones. He's got his sling. He says, if I'm going to take this on, I'm not all of a sudden going to do it as if I were you. That's not my story. I'm not a coat of armor kind of guy. I'm me. And so he's comfortable enough in his own skin to choose the weapons that he's accustomed to. Um, I remember early on for me at Asbury, one of the, one of the, the growing curves for me was uh, I shared an office with, with Todd Craig, who's, who's now with us, and with our friend Spencer, both of whom are, have, have way more experience than me in ministry. I'm coming in, like, kind of my second job out of college and pretty squirrely, and I'm sharing an office with these two guys, and I'm constantly thinking about how I need to be like one of them or like both of them. And, it, and it's taken years for me to begin to just be comfortable in my own skin and just be me. Uh, and, and this was one of those stories that gave me a metaphor for being me. Like, I don't need to wear Todd's armor or Spencer's armor or Bill's armor. I just need to be, I need to be me in my own skin. David had enough comfort with who he was in that moment that he could avoid the king's advice, which would have been harmful for him. And in being himself, he brought his, his best self into the battle. The fourth thing, and this is what we'll talk about quite a bit in a moment, was David was conversant conversant about his goals and his values. He knew what was important to him, and he had resolved within himself what he was going to do. This is uh, for Samuel 45 and 46 there. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the animals, and everybody's going to know that there's a God in Israel. David values the honor of God's name, and it ticks him off when God is dishonored. David has a sense of his values, and he knows exactly what he's going to do. In this case, strike you down and cut off your head and give your armies the carcasses to the birds. David is conversant. In this moment, he knows what he values and what he's going to do about it. That enables him to take action and to persevere in the action. And then finally, this was just outside the text that we read, David was committed to seeing this whole thing through. So he'd grown in competence. He had confidence in the Lord. He was comfortable in his own skin. He was conversant about his values and his goals. Finally, he was committed to seeing it all the way through. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. There was no hemming and hawing. There was no, oh my gosh, I just told him I was going to cut off his head. Now he's going to destroy me. He's all in. He runs to the battle lines to meet him. And I think David's clarity and confidence and his competence, all of this came through a, a, a series of behaviors that David must have practiced throughout his lifetime of action and reflection, action and reflection, action and reflection. He did stuff. He thought about how it went doing stuff, and he did more stuff, action and reflection. We know that David was a reflective person because we have his journals. We have all these songs that he's written that he's, he's thinking critically and reflecting on the experience he's had through the lens of his relationship with God. He takes action. He reflects action and reflection. 
This wasn't David's first rodeo. It was his most public rodeo. It was, the, it was the biggest threat that he had faced. But David had a history of confronting issues head on, and that had prepared him for this moment. And one of the biggest lessons that David had taken uh, from his experiences was his value, the value of the honor of God's name. This value burned in him and gave him clarity about what he was going to do. And what he was going to do was take this giant down. He had clarity about his own goals and destiny and values. He had a vision of a preferred future. Andy Stanley uh, is, a, is a great pastor, great teacher. His leadership podcast is, is pretty stellar. And he's got this great quote uh, that has bearing on our conversation here. He says, in the absence of a clear and compelling vision, organizations or people will celebrate activity rather than progress. And if vision is just clarity about your values and your goals, your sense of a preferred future, if that's all you know, vision is, if we're not clear on that, according to Stanley, we're going to celebrate busyness and activity. If you don't know the kind of life that you would like to, to practice, to live, if you don't know what it looks like, if you don't know the values that are driving your actions, you're just going to celebrate whatever it is you celebrate that occupies a life. Well, vacation was really good. Or, or like my kids' sport teams are doing fine. You know, work is going, you know, well enough. In the absence of a clear picture of a preferred future without values that are driving it and driving your actions, there's just like we celebrate whatever occupies our time. I think the question for us is, are, is our activity and our busyness uh, getting us where we want to go? And does it reflect the values, the things that we would say are the most important? I think it's fair to say that, that one of the key measures of a meaningful life is the degree to which our actions reflect the, the things that we say are the most important to us. Do we actually do something with the stuff that we said mattered the most? So if you and I sat down for coffee or we went to lunch and just said, you know, what, what's most important to you in life? And took out a napkin, a little square napkin, and handed you a pen and said, write down the three, four, five things. You say, this is what matters the most to me. This is what, in my estimation, really counts for making a valuable life. What would you write down? Like, just think, just we're in the restaurant, the napkin's there, you got the pen in hand. What, what's top of mind for you? These are the things that are the most important to me. These are my, my values, my ideals. And then after you'd written them down, I asked you to walk me through the last 30 days of your life, the last 60 or 90 days of your life, and said, show me where these ideals have been reflected in your actions and your schedule and, and your checkbook. Demonstrate to me how these things are in action. If we, looked at, if we had you write down your values and had you look at the last 30, 60, 90 days, compare your actions to your values, how would you fare in that kind of examination? I think that one of the things that we might find as we consider what we've written down and what we've actually done in real time is that it might be that we don't actually value all that much the things that we say that we value. In the absence of real clarity about what matters most, in the absence of real action that's in alignment with those values, each of us are going to default to busyness in activity, whether that's the kind of activity that gets us where we want to go or not. The kind of clutter and the kind of busyness that makes a calendar full but doesn't necessarily make a life full and meaningful. 
Richard Rohr, who's written a bunch of great stuff, has this great quote in his book, From Wild Man to Wise Man. He said, I'd say that if you only think about Jesus, believe Jesus, and believe things about Jesus, not much new is going to happen in your life. It's the risk of acting like Jesus acted that reconfigures your soul. We are converted, we're transformed by new circumstances, much more than by new ideas. Or as I like to say, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living, we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Rohr here is talking about faith, about one's relationship uh, with Jesus, and making the case that simply talking about it, writing it down on the napkin, doesn't mean that that's actually a value in your life. Uh, it's not doing the trick. And he's basically making the, the same point that James, the brother of Jesus, did in James chapter 1. Don't merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, I don't want to overcomplicate this message or over-spiritualize it, kind of make it too difficult. You don't even need to leave and remember any of these points. Uh, David is our hero in this story because David did a thing. David acted. It's called David and Goliath because David inserted himself into this real-time narrative by doing something. He acted. He instigated. He inserted himself into the plot by doing something in alignment with his values. And as you think about your values, the stuff that you would write down on a napkin in a restaurant, the things that you say, this is what I want to count in my life. I want to challenge you today to not overcomplicate it, to follow your impulse, your instincts, and I just want to challenge you to do something, anything, in alignment with your values, the stuff that you would say matters most in your life. So you value integrity, integrity, that's what's going to be one of my hallmarks in life. Well, then do something about that. Confess your sin to somebody, and if you value your integrity, put some boundaries in place in places where you struggle. You value your integrity, do something about it. You value your kids, your relationship with your children or with grandkids or nieces or nephews. Uh, well, when you're with them, put down the phone and get on the floor. Let them look you in the face. If you say, this matters to me, do something about it. You value your family. Pick up the phone and call a family member that you haven't talked to in ages. That the people sometimes that we're closest with, we can grow the most distance from. We, we assume familiarity when we may not know them anymore. Pick up the phone and, and, and make, make a call. Say, hey, I just want to talk to you. Ask some questions. Evaluate your friendships. Initiate some kind of activity. I don't think that we know how to be friends with people anymore. I, don't, I think that that's something that we have to learn, and the church should be a place that we learn how to be friends. Initiate something. Take a relational risk. Invite someone over to your home. That's why, you know, from time to time we've paid for, for people to go out and get coffee or meals. Initiate something. If you value friendship, do something about it. If you value your faith, your relationship with God, you've done something to demonstrate that today because you've made the choice uh, to come to church. I commend you for it. Read your Bible. Pray. Give away your money. Uh, serve the poor. The things that you would write on the napkin, I don't care what it is for you. Make some kind of action in alignment with your values. Do something. Consider your values and just do it. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overthink it as many of us are wont to do. Just do something. I think for me, some of the most meaningful moments in life, from the time I was little until now, 
Some of the most meaningful moments in life for me are when I've acted on an impulse, in like a holy kind of impulse. And those have led to some great seasons of life for me and for our family. I think about in 2014, Emily and I had two kids, we're very sleepy, and, you know, I get home from work, learning a lot. We get kids bathed, we get kids fed, get kids in bed. We do the dishes. We're exhausted. It's 9 o'clock, 9.30. Let's turn on the TV and just veg out. And we find out we're going to bed at 10.30 or 11. We want to wake up early the next day to read our Bibles, do something aligned with our values, but we're sleepy because we watched TV too much last, last night. And one of those days we just had a moment of clarity where we thought, let's just experiment with putting the TV in the closet for two weeks and let's just see what happens. And really, and it hasn't come out. We gave the TV away to my little sister. Um, uh, that was the first domino to fall in a lot of great things that happened in our life. And really, 15 or 20 dominoes down is, is starting Cornerstone. Uh, I'm not saying the one impulsive thing that you do today is going to lead to this amazingly transformative moment, but it's not going anywhere if you do nothing. One of the most valuable things that I think that we can cultivate as followers of Jesus is a kind of holy impulsivity where you have a thought, you're driving down the street, you see someone walk in the other direction, you think, I should talk to them. Do it. Just do it. You're here and you know from social media or through the grapevine that somebody in our church is just struggling with something and you're, you're on the one hand like, well, I want to respect their privacy. You know, just talk to them. Hey, sister, brother, how can I pray for you? Are you doing okay? Give them a hug. You have that thought about, I think I should, I heard about this cause out there, foster care, Syrian refugees, whatever. You have a thought, we should give to that. We should learn about that. We should pray about it. Just do it. Uh, with your children, just do it. You have a thought with, with your friends, like I want to make this a more sincere relationship. Ask a question, just do it. Develop that kind of holy impulsivity. It's better to fail miserably or fail more likely awkwardly by failing forward than by doing nothing and just being a lump on a log, having the light of the world in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and doing just absolutely nothing with it. For many of us, you may need to reinsert yourself as a character in your own story by doing something meaningful, taking action in alignment with your values. And when we're tempted to undermine the value of our actions, well, it doesn't really matter. They know that I love them, or someone else is probably going to take care of it. When you're tempted to undermine the value of your own actions and choices, when you get frustrated when that holy impulsivity doesn't lead to total transformation instantaneously, we need to call to mind how it's the little things that change a life. Call to mind the motto of the stone quarry workers in the Middle Ages, they said, we who cut mere stones must always be imagining cathedrals. We always have the bigger picture in mind when we're doing this one small action, that this is a part of a whole, this is a domino that falls. Does this complete everything? No, but it's something. We who cut mere stones must always be imagining cathedrals. Our small actions, when we follow the voice of the Spirit, when we, we risk it and just see, I don't know if it's me, if it's God, if it's right or it's wrong, I'm going to try it. Our small actions can have large positive consequences and be part of a bigger story. And in the middle of this, we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, who the author of Hebrews des describes as the pioneer of our faith. 
the chief doer, the chief actor, the chief instigator in God's story, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He didn't see everything that could go wrong. It was for the joy, the possibility, the opportunity for him that he endured the cross. And now we are brought into this whole story. We know that there is nothing that we can do, no no matter how magnificent a human being that you are, to save yourself. So we trust in what Jesus has done through his death and the resurrection, the accomplished work of his doing, his acting, his instigating, through his ministry and his death and resurrection. Our will is liberated, we're regenerated, we're brought into the story, and in response to all he's done, he was the first domino to fall. We're invited to go and do and act and imagine, join him in the story and do something. So what, is, what are the things that you'd write down on the napkin? Give yourself a little audit of your own heart and your schedule and your checkbook, and is there alignment between what you say matters most and, the, and a real-time audit of your last 30 to 90 days? How are you doing? And what is, what is your impulse telling you? What is your conscience telling you? What is the Holy Spirit telling you about something that you can do now to get those in better alignment? a holy impulsivity. Things could go horribly wrong or there could be just joy on the other side of our fear that holds us back. Do something. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for my friends in the room who maybe could never point to a time where they decided to follow you, kind of vaguely religious or, you know, uh, go to church sometimes, but it's because friends go or because it's just what you do in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I pray that there would be a, a kind of holy impulsivity today where a person, a man or a woman might say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm doing it. I'm, they're running up to the battle line. I pray for that person, whether it's today in receiving communion or this afternoon at home uh, or, or tonight just to, as you're lying on your bed, that you just make the choice. I'm going to follow Jesus, and let that be your, the first domino to fall for you, that act of holy impulsivity. And for those of us in this room who, uh, in looking at our values and our actions in real time, see a tremendous misalignment, I pray that you give us the courage and the impulsivity to repent and to change and to ask for help. To help us to have clarity about who you're calling us to be, where you're calling us to go, and give us the courage to make bold choices. And for those of us, God, that you're, you're birthing something new in us, a, a new behavior, a new relationship, a new activity of some kind, that you give us the courage to just do something, to get off the bench, to reinsert ourselves into your story, and to become a character in it by cooperating with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that none of this is on our shoulders that this is not a just-do-it kind of sermon because it's all on us, but because of what you're doing, because you're active in the world, just as David saw this deep alignment and cooperation between your work and his work, we want to cooperate with your work in our, in our lives and our friendships and families in the city of Tulsa. Uh, give us a kind of holy discontent that leads to holy impulsivity, and may Jesus be honored as we get to work. All this we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.